Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and uh, Eric, I, I don't know about you, but I don't pay much attention to and honestly I'm a little bit squeamish about the uh, bare knuckle fighting championships mm. that have been getting a wee bit of traction this year. I'm sure you've been getting all the press releases and right. about it in your inbox. It, but it's honestly, it's not my thing at all, really. I think I think that's where I draw my line. But um, it was pretty much impossible to ignore the most recent bare knuckle card, or at least one specific moment in that card. Um, Australian fighter Ty Emery, who she was previously a competitor in the lingerie football league and has an OnlyFans page, but there you go. Uh, she stopped her opponent. She actually looks like she can fight, actually. She stopped her opponent and then promptly leapt up onto the top rope and flashed the crowd. Uh, the commentators, I loved their response to it. Interesting celebration right there. Haven't seen that one before, they said. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing. I'll be honest. Seeing how well it caught on, how viral it went, I wondered if it would start a trend. And honestly... I was a little bit nervous when Andy Ruiz was declared the winner against Luis Ortiz. <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, maybe Andy should try the reverse. You know, he should give the crowd what it wants by climbing on the ropes and putting a shirt on at the end ah, of the fight. Ah, there fights. you go. I think I think that would really that that's a crowd pleaser right there. Um, yeah. By the way, how is it that every Andy Ruiz fight week we see photos of him looking? Almost muscular, his stomach looking a bit flatter, and then he gets in the ring and there's none of that. Is is it yeah. all Photoshop fakery every fight week and we keep falling for it? Because, I don't know, on, on Saturday night, uh, as usual, uh, he could have used a man's ear in the ring. I liked um, what our buddy Rafe Bartholomew said. He called it his new Alex Jones physique, oh, which yeah. I thought was perfect. Actually. Yeah. In, the, in in terms of what we were seeing pre-fight in those apparently photoshopped yeah. pictures, yes. Like, um, like, but, like not necessarily quite as flabby as before, but, you know, probably don't want to be showing it off. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I don't know. The guy basically walks around sucking it in and puffing out his chest all week and then and then gets in the ring and it all just uh, it all droops. Indeed. Well, yes, story of my life. Anyway, <laughs> apart from the getting in the ring thing. All right, it is a showbox week. Uh, there is a three-fight card live from Atlantic City on Friday night, so we're going to be previewing that uh, with a big assist from this week's guest, showbox color analyst and fellow podcaster, Brian Campbell. He'll be joining us in a bit. Uh, we will also discuss a wide assortment of news stories. We'll preview a major women's boxing card in London, and Eric will count down the top five performances by either Roy Jones and slash or Floyd Mayweather. But we start with the Labor Day Eve Sunday night pay-per-view event on which Andy Ruiz scored three knockdowns and needed every one of them to eke out a close decision over Luis Ortiz in a heavyweight fight that actually wasn't as thrilling as that description makes it sound. No, the broadcasters on this Fox pay-per-view from Crypto.com Arena in Los Angeles described the fight as having intermittent excitement. That's a good word for it. Uh, in this battle of veteran heavyweights trying to stay relevant, Ruiz dropped King Kong Ortiz twice in the second round and once in the seventh, with right hands to the temple doing the damage. But the 43-year-old Ortiz weathered those rough moments and used his jab and some southpaw left hands to win plenty of rounds when he wasn't getting knocked down. Ruiz just wasn't punching enough at times, allowing the fight to remain close. And in the end, the judges had it 113-112 and 114-111 twice, all for Ruiz, who moves to 35-2 with 22 KOs, while Ortiz drops to 33-3. and 
I happen to score at 113-112 for Ortiz, but I recognize that I'm in the minority and have no problem with Ruiz winning. Kieran, how did you score it? Or, or were you too bored and or tired to score it carefully? And what did you make of Ruiz's performance? And, and who would you like to see him fight next? <laughs> Believe it or not, and you probably will believe it, uh, I actually also scored a 113-112 Ortiz. Okay. Um, I honestly thought that Ortiz won virtually every round yep. that he stayed on his feet um, because, as you noticed, uh, Ruiz threw so little. Um, that said, I wasn't scoring it with the same kind of like intense focus that I score fights at ringside or where I'm making detailed notes or, or it's a truly major fight. Mm-hmm. So the idea of 113-112 or 114-111 Ruiz doesn't even remotely offend me and that may well have been a more accurate score honestly they all sound about right um i did see a few folks on twitter scoring it actually quite a few folks on twitter scoring it as 115 110 or or wider but that actually Mm. did seem a little wide to me but again i'm not that exercised about it either way um it wasn't uh uh, like you said a necessarily thrilling performance by either man but it wasn't that they were mailing it in. They were they were both doing their utmost to impose their own style. They just really largely negated each other, I think, with, with their styles. Mm. Ortiz, I thought, looked reasonably comfortable when he was able to just jab and box. Ruiz seemed to be somewhat frustrated by that southpaw stance and Ortiz's style, but was obviously effective when he was able to let fly with combinations. And, and that's the thing with Andy Ruiz. Um not you know we just made a joke about him um it's there's been the the obvious target with andy ruiz is is his size but he's always had much faster hands and and better boxing ability than you would imagine from simply just looking at him right but he's as long as he keeps coming in that heavy he's always going to be limited you just can't fight for three minutes around when you know you're you're that height and that way um and yeah like we're saying he, he was less flabby before but even if you just replace some flab with muscle you're still just adding weight and and he came in at 269 pounds pretty much which is which is an enormous amount um if he were able to consistently come in in the 240s um even low 250s you feel he'd be much more effective if he were able to combine that hand speed and his ability to show good throw good combinations and real boxing skill you know with that greater sort of dedication to being in shape um you know then then he'd be much more effective i think um but you know he seems like an immensely likable guy andy ruiz he's a popular fighter and honestly this is a pretty good time to be in or around the upper echelons of the heavyweight division you know fury and Usyk are focused on each other and fury obviously is retiring and unretiring constantly um anthony joshua is is sort of lacking in confidence and needing to rebuild himself a little. There there are fights to be made uh, and wins to be had and belts to be won. And and Ruiz has already shown us that he's capable of that. Um, But all the indications are that Deontay Wilder will be the one who's next. And that's assuming that Wilder gets past Robert Hellenius. And and I don't think that's a foregone conclusion at all. Um, It's entirely possible that Wilder really struggles with Hellenius or even loses to him. But, it's also possible he looks like the Wilder of old and, and blasts him out of there. Uh, that's why we're intrigued about seeing that fight in, in October. But I do think that a Deontay Wilder, who's somewhat like the one we have seen before, I, I just don't know that it's a very good style matchup for Andy Ruiz. Even though he has Ruiz a better boxing IQ than Deontay Wilder, I just have a very hard time. Wilder's so much you know, longer and taller um, and he uses that length and height so well. And Ruiz, he's shown us plenty of times that he's got a good chin. He showed it again on, on Sunday night. But 
man, he's it's going to be hard if Wilder keeps landing those big right hands of his on him. I, I just think it could be a really, really tough night for Andy Ruiz. Um, but the thing is, by winning, Ruiz has made sure that he's back in the conversation, which mm-hmm. had he lost, he might not have been. Um, but what about the guy who did lose, Ortiz? Uh, the fact that you scored it for him by a point like I did, do you think that means he should fight on? He certainly seemed very keen to do so. Or, you know, at at least 43 years old, is it time for him to retire? And, you know, while you're at it, any other thoughts you have on the fight? So despite giving Ortiz 8 of 12 rounds and 8 of the 10 rounds in which he wasn't knocked down, I saw a creaky old fighter who ought to think very seriously about retiring. His punch resistance is clearly diminished. His legs go a little funky every time he's hit clean. Now, he deserves a ton of credit for the heart he showed for his ring intelligence in in using the jab to stay at a safer distance and stay in the fight on the cards when, you know, it was clear by round two that he was at risk of getting knocked out at any moment if he got too close and made another mistake. This is a performance, a close loss that that he can be proud of and, you know, a good one to go out on, in my view. Um, If he fights on, he's mostly just a name for up-and-comers to try to add to their resume. So I hope he has other options because... Yeah, it looks like the right time to retire to me. Um, so some other notes on the fight. I typically don't have a ton of praise for Lennox Lewis as a commentator, but he did have one he- line here that I liked where he was unusually brutally honest. In round 10, Brian Kenny was lamenting the lack of action, and Lennox said, one guy's old and the other guy's <laughs> overweight. Uh, you know, yeah, we could all see that. Uh, but it was nice to hear Lennox, who's usually too nice a guy to be very critical verbalizing it and and to double back to all the Andy Ruiz jokes that we've made so far and Lennox calling him overweight and all that I feel comfortable doing that making those jokes because Andy Ruiz makes those same jokes about right. himself he he makes it a punchline himself so I don't feel like I'm body shaming uh or piling on in any way when it's specifically Andy Ruiz um now the punch stats for this fight were fairly appalling uh 12 full rounds one guy lands 76 punches the other lands oh. 78 yet it didn't suck. It, it had its moments, right. you know, um, and, and especially because of the wagers that I had, there was some drama. I bet Ruiz by decision at plus 275, which I felt lousy about in round two. Uh, and then um, I had that bet going. And then after the fourth or fifth round, I can't remember which it was in the live odds Ortiz by decision was 20 to one. Um, when I saw that on my card, at least he'd arguably won those first few rounds other than the second it seemed that Ortiz by decision you know it wasn't likely but it wasn't impossible and that payout was crazy high so uh I put a slice or two of pizza on that um so you know now I'm setting myself up to where I'm gonna have a nice winning night if either guy wins a decision which made the 12th round particularly exciting for me as I'm praying for them both to just run out the clock. Um, (laughs) But good for Ortiz, seriously, that he was looking for the knockout, and he clearly won round 12. He took it on all three cards. Even though Ruiz won the fight and won the knockdown battle 3-0, I come away disappointed in him, as I often Mm -hmm. do. He has certain gifts and certain shortcomings, and he's really only had one night in his career so far Mm -hmm. that left us only talking about the gifts. So... I don't know. I don't know if that'll ever repeat that he really puts it all together again the way he did in that first Anthony Joshua fight. Yeah. 
Okay, let's talk about the undercard. Uh, the pre-show on Fox and FS1 didn't give us much to analyze, with Showtime regular Raisa Salim looking good in dominating Mike Planilla, winning by unanimous 100-89 to scores, while Joey Spencer was almost as dominant in a somewhat dull decision win over Kevin Salgado. But the three pay-per-view bouts leading up to Ruiz-Ortiz, all of them in the lightweight division, offered either thrills or intrigue, or both. Um, in the co-feature... Isak Cruz was in full pitbull mode against Eduardo Ramirez, scoring two big knockdowns in the second round to force the quick stoppage in front of an enthusiastic L.A. crowd. Before that, Showtime broadcaster Abner Morris fought for the first time in more than four years and looked good in spots, struggled in others, faded as the fight went on, and settled for a 10-round majority draw against Miguel Flores. And the opening bout of the pay-per-view was a wild one. Late sub Edwin De Los Santos, whom we've seen on Showbox, handed prospect Jose Valenzuela his first defeat. The second round was very memorable, with Valenzuela clipping De Los Santos for a knockdown, then De Los Santos scoring a knockdown of his own, but hitting Valenzuela while he was down and losing a point, giving Valenzuela a lot of time to recover as ref Ray Corona clarified the rulings. But then De Los Santos dropped Valenzuela again early in the third, and Corona soon stopped it with Valenzuela on his feet taking shots at center ring. Uh, Kieran, observations on either of these quick KOs or on Abner's not-quite-successful return to the ring? I will say, first of all, it says a lot about our sport that the undercard featured a third-round knockout and a second-round knockout and still lasted almost two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that said, that notwithstanding, it was an entertaining undercard. Mm. Um, let's take the knockouts first, um, starting with the first fight. Look, this is the second time in a couple of weeks now that a late replacement has come in and really taken advantage of the situation and scored a stoppage win. Um, and, you know, whereas uh, Omar Figueroa looked done before and said he was done afterwards and had indeed looked that way before Sergei Lipinets pushed him out the door. Jose Valenzuela is a much touted prospect. Uh, this was a bad loss to take, yeah. um, unless it's something that he can learn from. Uh, but De Los Santos just straight up mauled him from first bell to last, with the exception of that knockdown that he suffered, which was sort of against the run of play, as it were, in the second. Um, I thought Ray Corona, who, who I like as a referee, did a good job in, in warning Valenzuela in advance that he needed to turn that tide and, and stop taking clean shots, even though it was early in the fight, because, man, he was just getting nailed with big shots um, and, and not answering it in that third round. Um, but congratulations to Los Santos, who shows, again, the importance of being ready to go yep. um, whenever you get that call. Uh, but Valenzuela's got some pieces to pick up after that. Um, Honestly, uh, with Cruz versus Ramirez, I actually thought in the first round, I thought Cruz was pressing too hard. It looked to me like he was loading up too much. He wasn't allowing himself to get his feet set or to set up his punches or to get his distance right. He was winging and missing a lot as, as Ramirez moved out the way. And I thought, oh, you know what? Ramirez might have the kind of style to, to cause him some problems here. But yeah, look. Cruz really, really lives up to his nickname, and he just he just used his strength and will to just back Ramirez where against the ropes where he wanted, and, and then just just blast him. Uh, the way that Ramirez had his hands down and his chin exposed before that first knockdown, the first thought is, well, he just maybe just wasn't that good. That's a pretty elemental mistake. But you know, it's, it's a guy who stopped Miguel Flores, who had just drawn with with Abnamares in five rounds, like not very long ago. At, this was actually, I think, just Cruz being Cruz. Yeah. If you can get past those early rounds, you maybe have a shot against him. But during those first few rounds, you 
better not do what Ramirez did. You better not feel the ropes against your back at all. You had better be on your toes figuratively and literally. Um, and as for Abner, I thought you summed it up quite well. I, it's a bit of a glass half empty, glass half full situation. Um, our friend Gail Falkenhall tweeted that she thought he, quote, can expect a serious discussion with wife Natalie when they get mm. home. Um, and yeah, you know, there was talk on the broadcast about how she wasn't very excited about this comeback, and right. she certainly didn't look particularly excited at any point during the contest or at the end of it. Um, I do hope he goes away and has a think about what he wants to do. Um, as of Monday morning, there's no reason at all to suggest he's rethinking any of it, or no indication at all, I should say, to suggest he's rethinking any of this. He tweeted um, on Monday morning, uh, wow, exclamation point times three, four years and a half out of the ring, and it felt so good to be back. Not happy with the decision, but super happy with my performance. Obviously, there's things I could have done better, but I'm proud of myself and my team. And, and yeah, he should be. Look, for a guy on the back half of his 30s who... You know, who'd had the the eye injuries and been out of the ring for you know that length of time. On the one hand, he with all those caveats, he looked pretty damn good. You know, Flores is no joke. Uh, I said on our preview last week that if Abner wasn't the Mares of four years ago, he could be in for a rough night, and he wasn't the Mares of four years ago. And I suppose it was unreasonable to expect him to be, and he did have a tough night. Um, it's probably not unexpected that he faded over the second half of the fight. Um, the glass half full aspect is that until he started tiring, he looked really strong offensively and was landing some really good right hands with real force and accuracy. The glass half empty is that those flush punches barely moved Flores. And if Maras is going to be campaigning at 135, which is a monster of a division, yes. um, he's going to encounter bigger and better opponents who are just going to swat those punches aside. Um, and the other thing that bothered me a little bit, I noticed that earlier you and I were DMing each other about this during the fight, was that... It looks like his defense, defensive reflexes have sh slowed. Um, mm -hmm. He was taking more flush right hands than I would have liked to have seen him from quite early. Uh, I wouldn't like to see Javante Davis, for example, landing those yes. punches on him. Um, so, yeah, look, he can come away with pride. He can compete still. Um, I'm not sure if he's going to be able to compete really for a, at a world title level. I, I don't think he is based on that. But my guess is that, you know, unless unless his wife reads him the riot act, my guess is based on what we saw on Sunday night, he will be back for more. Yeah, he doesn't sound like a guy who believes he's done. And, you know, I don't think he's all used up, certainly. Um, he's not what he once was, but he's a perfectly solid boxer who can beat some guys. But he's just a unique case because he has other options. He has the Showtime mm -hmm. gig. He has the bar restaurant he was telling us about several months back. And I watched this fight thinking about that ridiculous 135-pound division you were talking about. And just flashing through my head were the names of assorted, really good, young lightweights that I want to yeah. keep him the hell away from. Um, yeah. I, I don't want to tell him what to do, but, you know, against Miguel Flores, he could only really give three strong rounds before he started to fade. It's not a great sign for if he wants to tangle with the guys at the top. I would hope he'll at least think hard about it and, as you said, talk to talk to Natalie before uh, signing to fight again. One fighter I would surely want to keep Abner Morris many miles away from is Isak Pitbull Cruz. Yeah. Um, two notes on his fight. Um, first, I've praised Jack Reese recently. 
Now I go back to criticizing him a bit. He bought Ramirez like 10 extra seconds mm. after the knockdown with all sorts of nonsense and instructions. It didn't ultimately make a difference, but that was unfair to Cruz. You, you knock a guy down, he gets the count, maybe a couple more seconds, and then you get the chance to follow up. And Cruz had to wait and wait and wait through no fault of his own. It was immaterial, but it bugged me. Um, and the other thing, the crowd really popped for Cruz, huh? Um, yeah. He's built a bit of a following in L.A., it seems. So th that's nice to see. I didn't realize that he was starting to make a name for himself in that way. Um, lastly, Delos Santos. Boy, tough break for Valenzuela having Jezreel Corrales drop out. I think that fight might have gone very differently than this one did. Um, great work by Ray Corona penalizing him properly in round two. I thought the stoppage was maybe just a tad early, but maybe not. Um, I had just dotted, jotted down in my notes that Valenzuela seemed like he needed a miracle to win the fight. So um, not going to complain about the stoppage too much, even if I might have liked to see it go another punch or two. But we should definitely be paying closer attention to Edwin Delos Santos. Yeah. He he lost that one fight on Showbox that he was undertrained for and ran out of gas quickly, and I feel like that might have thrown us off the scent. And uh, the reality is that this guy is dangerous. Yeah, um, there was one other notable card this past weekend that produced two fights that are worthy of discussion in uh, Hermosillo, Mexico, on the zone on Saturday night. Uh, let's start with the main event, which saw Juan Francisco Estrada survive a surprisingly close supposed tune-up fight against little-known Argy Cortez to clear the path to a third meeting with Chocolatito Gonzalez. Um, Estrada scored a key knockdown in the seventh round, and he won by unanimous decision. Scores were 115-112 twice and 114-113. Uh, scores that reflect what a competitive bout this was. Uh, after the win, Estrada announced during an interview with Claudia Trejos that the Chocolatito rubber match will take place on December 3rd. Eric, does Estrada's struggle with Cortez concern you? make you think perhaps that Chocolatito should be a clear favorite in December. Uh, any other thoughts on this unexpectedly entertaining 12-rounder? So I think based on the second fight between Estrada and Chocolatito, uh, really each of their two fights so far, although the first one was a lifetime ago, but based on the second fight, I was leaning towards saying Chocolatito should be the slightest of favorites. And this struggle that Estrada had against Cortez doesn't change anything for me there. Um, I mean, this was Estrada's first fight in 18 months after COVID and starts and stops in training. In retrospect, we shouldn't have expected him to look his absolute best, especially when it turned out R.G. Cortez is a legit good fighter. We assumed he would be mediocre because under these circumstances, right. why would Estrada pick him as the opponent if he wasn't mediocre? But that narrative didn't pan out. Uh, Cortez came in at 23-2-2. and but he was 21-0-2 in his last 23 fights, undefeated since 2015. And the thing we can sometimes underestimate, this was his Super Bowl. Right. This was a hungry 27-year-old Mexican fighter getting the opportunity of a lifetime for him. So he brought his A-plus game. Estrada had a little rust to shake off and maybe ended up bringing his B-plus game. And it was a close fight. But Estrada still clearly won. So... I don't think any less of Estrada than I did a week ago. I definitely think a lot more of Cortez than I did a week ago. Mm. So, no, this doesn't change how close to a toss-up the Chocolatito rubber match appears to be to me. Both fighters are past their absolute primes, but still borderline pound-for-pound -pound guys. Uh, my only other note on the Estrada-Cortez fight, uh, besides the fact that it was indeed highly entertaining, is that they used open scoring, mm -hmm. announcing the judges' scores every four rounds, and it took a bit of the drama out of the fight while not enhancing anything. 
open scoring is one of those things that seems on paper like a good thing. And when you first start getting into boxing, you think it sounds like a good idea. And then every few years, somebody tries it. And every time someone tries it, you're reminded that it isn't good for the fans. It isn't good for the fighters. It doesn't make the judging any better. And in this fight, once again, it was somewhere between neutral at best and slightly detracting at worst. Yeah, indeed. Um, earlier on that card, a fight that wasn't really on our radar at all to discuss going in, uh, it turned into a, a fight of the year candidate uh, in a battle for a vacant 108-pound belt when South Africa's Sivanathi Nontishinga pulled out a split decision win over Mexico's Hector Flores after 12 grueling rounds. Nontishinga dropped Flores with a right hand in the second round. There are a couple of possible round of the year candidates that followed. Uh, is this actually in the mix for you for fight of the year? And did the correct fighter get his hand raised? Well, on that latter question, I didn't score carefully, but, you know, informally, I thought, indeed, the correct fighter won, uh, especially it was in Mexico. So for the South African fighter to get the split decision over the Mexican fighter usually means the visiting fighter deserved it. As for the fight of the year question, I don't think it's in the mix to win. It, it didn't surpass the top two candidates on my list, which are Taylor Serrano and Wood Conlon. But it might be number three. Uh, it, it's got to be in any list of honorable mentions. This fight was great fun. I thought rounds four and six were both round of the year honorable mention type of rounds. The fight had good swings of momentum. Just maybe a few too many lulls in the second half of the fight as they understandably tried to catch their breath for it to become my new number one fight of the year so far. But I will say Hector Flores, who I'd never heard of before this, instantly climbs high on the list of my favorite action fighters. Uh, in defeat, he showed the kind of style that you just figure is never going to miss. He'll never be in a bad fight. He's aggressive, high energy, throws a variety of punches, goes to the body a lot, and has middling defense. Um, so <laughs> next time he's fighting, I'm tuning in. And uh, one other note, uh, color analyst Jesse Vargas had a good line late in the fight. He said, these fights are what initiate trilogies. Absolutely. Mm. This kind of action demands a rematch, and if Flores wins that rematch, they do a third fight. The great trilogies start off with fights that look a lot like Saturday's Nonshinga Flores War. Uh, finally, I should note the card in Liverpool. Uh, Liam Smith stopped Hasim Joaquinio in the fourth round uh, in odd circumstances. Um, Joaquinio took a knee twice, seemed to spit his mouthpiece out once. Um, he may have injured his ankle the round yeah. before. It wasn't clear. But the thing is, fighters know fighters, and Smith's disgust at winning <laughs> and right. the, the ending, you know, suggests that some, something just felt wrong there. Um, he was he was unhappy at being denied a, a, an opportunity to have a strong uh, stoppage or a strong finish in front of his home crowd. And in the co-main, Natasha Jonas comfortably outpointed Patricia Bearcolt to add another alphabet belt to her super welterweight collection. Uh, meanwhile... In seemingly unconnected news, the England women's soccer team, who are the newly minted European champions, beat Austria 2-0 with goals from Alessia Russo and Nikita Paris, ensuring that the team known as the Lionesses will compete in the next Women's World Cup. Where am I going with this, you're wondering? <laughs> I am wondering, uh, yes. I mention it because our tweet of the week told me something I did not know. Antoine Allen at Antoine Speaker tweeted, have two siblings had international success on the same day before? 
at Lille Keats, which is Paris, uh, scored for England at Lionesses, and her sister at Tasha Jonas became a unified boxing world champion. Pretty epic day for their family and the nation, not seen a decent sports report about them yet. Well, let us fix that. I did not know <laughs> that Nikita Paris, star for the England women's soccer team, and Natasha Jonas are sisters, half-sisters more accurately, but... Yeah, that is pretty damn cool to have two siblings have massive success in two entirely different sporting events within a few hours of each other. I think that's pretty remarkable, and I really liked learning that. Yeah, that is very cool. I will admit that I had never heard the name Nikita Paris before uh, today because I'm not a someone who follows soccer closely. So I especially wouldn't have known that they were half-sisters. But uh, yeah, quite a, quite an accomplishment for that family. I thought that was pretty good. All right, let's move along to the news. Uh, we don't normally lead with an upcoming fight that's only in the rumor stage, but we're hearing it's basically a done deal. And this fight merely being in the works is big mainstream news on its own. Jake Paul is expected to take on MMA great Anderson Spider Silva on October 29th in Phoenix. And presumably not coincidentally, Silva just received a boxing license in Arizona this week. Um, Look, we've talked about Jake Paul plenty on our podcast. He's 25 years old, 5-0 and with four KOs, generally fights around 190 pounds. We haven't talked much, if at all, about Silva, but he's 47 years old. He has a boxing record of 3-1 and one with two KOs. The one loss was way back in 1998. He fought again in 2005, and then he fought twice last year, upsetting Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., and knocking out fellow aging MMA star Tito Ortiz in one round. Uh, when we have Brian Campbell on shortly... We'll certainly ask him for his insights on Silva, but as someone like myself with limited Anderson Silva expertise, Eric, how do you feel about this as a fight for Paul after the attempts to fight Tommy Fury and Haseem Rackman Jr. fell through? Well, I guess if we can't get Jake Paul against a legit pro boxer, and it's through no fault of Paul's that we haven't Indeed. yet, uh, this feels like the next best thing. And um, I assume this is going to sell better on pay-per-view than either a Fury fight or a yeah. Rackman fight we're going to. This fight is an event within that sideshow realm of boxing matches between people who are famous for things other than boxing. Uh, Silva has a huge name in MMA, and speaking on behalf of boxing fans who hardly watch any MMA, he's a name I've certainly heard plenty over the years. I remember that when there was a lot of talk about him facing Roy Jones in right. either a boxing match or something of the hybrid variety. Um but this fight isn't meant to appeal to people like me, hardcore boxing fans who don't know much MMA. It's meant to appeal to Jake Paul fans and general mainstream sports fans. And I assume it will indeed appeal to them. Um, and from my perspective, it's intriguing enough. It's not easy to identify going in who should win. It does, I think, represent a forward step in Jake Paul's progression. All in all, this fight makes a lot of sense for all involved. And if Jake Paul wins it, he does finally get a win over someone who has at least one win as a professional boxer. So right. that's something, I guess. And then, and then there's no reason that the next fight, if he wins this, can't be that first fight against an actual cruiserweight professional boxer of some sort. Uh, next up in the news section, a rather depressing co-main event. Uh, we usually save obituaries for the end of the segment. We had several this week, uh, so let's separate them out from the rest of the news here. One is an International Boxing Hall of Famer, Danish promoter Mogens Pala, who promoted fights spanning the likes of Sonny Liston, Mike Tyson, Carlos Monzon, and Joe Calzaghe. Pala, a 2008 IBHOF inductee, died at age 88. 
not quite a Hall of Famer, but certainly a huge name in boxing, Ernie Shavers, two-time heavyweight title challenger and arguably the hardest puncher the sport has ever seen, died at age 78. His record of 74-14-1 with 68 KOs included tough defeats in title fights against both Muhammad Ali and Larry Holmes. Another heavyweight, although a gatekeeper rather than a title contender, Everett Bigfoot Martin died at the far too young age of 58. He also fought Larry Holmes, among a lengthy list that included Vladimir Klitschko, George Foreman, Riddick Bowe. And while he lost the great majority of his fights against top opponents, Martin did score notable wins over Tim Witherspoon and Burt Cooper. And one more, uh, former Super Bantamweight title holder Rigoberto Riasco died at age 69. He had a pro record of 26-9-4 that included a six-month title reign and a loss to the great Alexis Arguello. Kieran, comments on any of these notable boxing figures who've recently passed? Yeah, a terrible week indeed for boxing. Um, uh, Pala began his career back in 1957, for heaven's sake, and he only officially retired last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as the names you mentioned, he brought the likes of Emil Griffith, Michael Spinks, Bob Foster to Denmark. Um, and of course, he played a major role in the careers of Scandinavian fighters such as Kester, as you mentioned, but also Anders Eklund, Brian Nielsen, mm-hmm. the Breedall brothers, uh, Ugandan-born Ayob Kaluli, Thomas Damgaard. For a country that is, to put it mildly, not considered a boxing hotbed, that's a pretty impressive resume. Um, Martin was the definition of a journeyman opponent. Um, He ended his career with a record of 20, 39, and 1 after starting off 6 and 0 and 13, 1 and 1. So, yes, your math is correct. He went 7 and 38 in his. In his final 45 fights, I was just double checking that, but yep. Uh, but holy moly, what a roll call of opponents. You yeah. mentioned a couple, but there was also Levi Billups, Dwight Muhammad Kawi, Gary Mason, Francesco Damiani, Bonecrusher Smith, Michael Mora, Tony Tucker, Lance Whittaker, Herbie Hyde, Tony Tubbs, Freza Kendo, <laughs> Lehman Brewster, Cliff Kauser, Obed Sullivan, Timo Hoffman, Luan Krasnicki, Sergei Leakovich, and Ruslan Chagayev. And amazingly, he went the distance against most of them, yeah. um, including George Foreman. Uh, um, remarkable. Uh, but obviously, the uh, the one who garnered the most attention was Shavers. I never had the chance to meet him, but he was, by all accounts, an extremely nice guy. Um, you mentioned he, he fought Larry Holmes. He fought him twice, in fact, of course. Uh, and they became close friends. But it was his punching power, as you mentioned, which he was best known. Um, he was one of the very few to deck Holmes. And Ali said he, quote, Hit me so hard it shook my kinfolk in Africa. Not the first time he had used the variation of that line, but it's a right. good one anyway. Yep. Um, I read that Foreman was once asked by Dave Letterman, who was the hardest puncher he ever faced, and he said Ron Lyle, to which Letterman responded, what about Ernie Shavers? Uh, to which Foreman replied, I never fought Shavers. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a quick run through of the rest of the news. A showbox card has been announced for October 21st. The main event. Uh, will be Ali Ismailov versus Radovoj Hotrod Kalajic. Uh, the Jojo Diaz-William Cepeda fight on DAZN has moved from November 5th to November 19th, believed to be because Dmitry Bivol versus Zoda Ramirez has landed on November 5th. Speaking of Bivol Ramirez, two undercard fights were announced last week. A 130-pound title fight between Joe Cordina and Shafakzon Rachimov and Jessica McCaskill moving down from welterweight to junior welterweight to challenge unbeaten Chantel Cameron for her two belts. Uh, according to Dan Rayfield, Jarrell Big Baby Miller versus Lucas Brown is in the works for November. Uh, we had two purse bids last week. 
One was fairly straightforward with Debella Entertainment winning the bid for Joshua Boazzi versus Jean Pascal. But the other had a twist ending with small time LA promotional company Marv Nation winning the Jose Cepeda Regis Progre fight with a hefty $2.4 million bid. And lastly, Former 122-pound titleist Danny Roman announced his retirement on the heels of his June loss to Stephen Fulton on Showtime. If indeed he stays retired, Roman 32 finishes with a record of 29-4-1. Eric, that is a quite a collection of news items. Is there anything you'd like to pick out from that? Uh, yeah, first off, best wishes to Danny Roman in retirement. Yeah. I often find myself saying this, but I hope it sticks. Um, yeah. If this is indeed the end for him, He's getting out at the first sign that he's perhaps starting to decline rather than after he has already declined and is a shell of his former self. Really, even, I guess with him, I'm, I'm not even totally sure I can say with certainty that he even has started to yeah. decline. He couldn't keep up with Stephen Fulton. That might not mean much, really. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, a fine career if this is the end. He provided plenty of entertainment, never lacked for heart or effort. I haven't thought much about the Ismailov hot, hot rod matchup yet, but I will note that several years ago, I thought that a then unknown hot rod Kalajic deserved to beat Olympian Marcus Brown in an eight rounder. And there is proof on YouTube that I thought that as I was the unofficial scorer of that bout uh, on the Errol Spence, Chris Algieri undercard at Barclay Center. You can go look it up and hear me speaking once for 20 seconds mid fight, which is really how I think my voice is meant to be heard. Um, <laughs> I really like those Bivol Zerto undercard fights. Uh, Cordina Rakimov looks like a fight either guy can win. And I love the women's fight. McCaskill does mm. not shy away from a challenge. Um, and that Marv Nation winning purse bid. I don't know. They're looking to play with the big boys, I guess, and make a splash. But I'm not sure how they're going to avoid losing money on that fight at that price. Zapata Progre is a great matchup, but it's not a multi-million dollar fight. Right. It feels like the kind of fight that should be a Showtime Championship Boxing co-feature for yeah. maybe a half million or so in combined purses. So I'm not sure where the money is coming from. Let's see if they succeed in making the payments along the way, and let's hope we don't have a Triller-Lopez-Camboso yeah. situation here. Uh, if we do, it defaults to the next highest bidder, which is TGB Promotions in this case, Tom Brown, who we had on the podcast once. Um, so we shall see what happens there. And I'll assume that Marv Nation is named after Marv Hagler, uh, not like my great uncle Marv or some <laughs> other random old Jewish guy. I don't know. Marv Nation, weird name. Try to segue from that into uh, introducing our interview guest. I, I, I dare uh, you, Kieran. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> okay. I'm fine. not even going to try. Um, unless, you know, our interview is on our latest return to Bry Nation. Nice. It just doesn't <laughs> that doesn't work. work. That doesn't, doesn't work, work at all. At all. <laughs> all right. Uh, this Friday, Showbox, the new generation, returns with a triple header from the place where it all began, Bally's in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And to help us break down the card is one of the men who will be calling the broadcast, Showbox expert analyst, morning combat co-host, and all-round good egg, our friend Brian Campbell. BC, what's up? Welcome back to the podcast. Wow, expert, a loose term these days, Karen Mulvaney, but always a pleasure to uh, reunite with you guys after being at many stops in the in the in the uh, boxing journey in terms of jobs to get to this point. But look at us now, guys. Look at us, look now. At us now. Absolutely. Yes. So you're sort of disputing expert, but you're not disputing good egg. You're, you're accepting good egg. Good egg. I'm, no, I'm fully behind. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm cashing a check as an expert. So let's, you know, it's up to you to decide <laughs> on Friday night. Right. right. Okay. So uh, we've had a change atop this uh, show 
showbox card. Not last minute, fortunately, at least not yet. Uh, but uh, about four weeks out, Shenard Bunch exited and in-stepped Joseph Adorno to face Hugo Alberto Rodan in the 10-round super lightweight main event. Adorno is a puncher. He has 14 KOs among 16 wins, big early KOs, his last couple of fights, and he dropped the very good Jermaine Ortiz twice en route to a draw. BC, just how big a puncher is Adorno and is Roldan, uh, as a slick Argentine boxer with just seven KOs and 21 wins, is he maybe a problematic style matchup for the puncher yeah. Adorno? I mean, we know styles make fights. We love saying that all the time, but this is really it. This is the pure boxer of Roldan against the wild, aggressive puncher of Adorno. And even though losing Shenard Bunch in this card, you can argue that putting in Adorno is, is the most must-see quality and arguably of the fighters on the televised portion the guy with the brightest ceiling now for Adorno, who's 16, one and two, it hasn't, it hasn't always looked perfect. He was a big time prospect. We remember him under the top rank banner, but he did have that three fight skid in which he went zero one and two suffered his first defeat when he stepped up very high on the Showtime boxing championship level against Michelle Rivera. And even though that was maybe a little bit too soon, wrong matchup, Adorno's camp says, he had to cut 30 pounds in a couple of weeks leading up to that. So that wasn't the prime version. His team, his trainer uh, tends to believe Raul Rivas here that that Adorno is that wild card who still has yet to go full bloom as a professional. I think that's fun to watch. Not just the power in his hands, the flashy haircut, the Adorno brothers both can bang. They're great TV fighters. But Joseph Adorno has had this amateur background for a while that has prepared him for big things as a pro even though it hasn't fully come together he's only 23 years old he's only has one official blemish on his record and he seems very happy hungry and ready for a recharge and a fresh start and that's why they took this fight here at 140 pounds up from where he was operating at lightweight where they don't necessarily plan to campaign here moving forward this is just a great opportunity at a close-up to see if this guy can put it all back on track. Now, look, I love wild TV fighters. I don't know if at the end of the day, that's who Adorno is going to end up being, but Joseph Adorno has the skills to maybe be more. So you look at this matchup, the pure boxer and rolled on. Let's see if he can set those traps and frustrate Adorno, who's never out of a fight because of his power, but can be very inconsistent despite having that high uh, background and that ability. Right. So, so Roldan seems about that level to you that, is going to give us a better sense of who the real Adorno is. Is it that guy who went 0-1 and 2, or is it a prospect with a, a really high ceiling? Roldan feels to you like right around that dividing line to tell us something. Absolutely, and he's the perfect style as a pure boxer, not known for his punching power, just seven, seven stoppages and 21 fights, but he's a little bit more experienced here. 29 years old, went on the road to Panama in his last fight and had to get up twice off the canvas, excuse me, not his last fight, but uh, in a 10-round decision win over Herman Del Castillo. So he's tough. He's in the same training camp as Sebastian Fundora. This will be his U.S. debut, of course, which is in his own right, a big showcase opportunity to take that step forward. But even more importantly, Roldan's got experience going the distance, has had 12 fights scheduled for 10 rounds. 11 of them went that full distance. On the flip side for Adorno, he's really still trying to prove in a lot of ways that he can win these type of longer fights. You mentioned that fight with Jermaine Ortiz. Yes, he rocked the, the more skilled fighter multiple times, ended up going down as a somewhat disputed draw. But I think for Adorno, this is actually the right kind of tricky, potentially kryptonatic style, if that's even a word in our post-Superman. <laughs> it is now. Uh, it is now. <laughs> um, 
I really like this matchup. Uh, you know, Rodon was asked about his style. He said it's indecipherable. I define my own wow. style. He believes he's a bit of a chameleon, but the history has shown us he's the pure boxer looking to make things trouble for the bigger puncher. All right. Um, the co-feature is an eight-rounder at welterweight, uh, undefeated Bernard Angelo Torres of the Philippines against one-beaten Francie Fortunata Saya of the Dominican Republic. Um, not to put too much pressure on the kid, but whenever you hear about a small southpaw from the Philippines, uh, and in this case, a guy who beat Mark McSayo three times in the amateurs, you do have to wonder, are there next Pacquiao vibes? So what do you think? Does Torres appear to have a real upside? And how stiff a test is he facing against Saya? Well, he's certainly not, you know, the full-on aggressive tropical storm puncher that Manny Pacquiao was when he arrived. It's always hard to make that comparison. But there's certainly something here. He's very world-traveled, having been born in the Philippines, uh, fights out of Norway, unbeaten 16-0 and with those seven stoppages. But even though he goes by the nickname La Machina, shout out to uh, Lucas Matisse <laughs> back in the day there. Um, he's a little bit more of a pure boxer. He's a southpaw, has won by split decision in two of his last four fights. So he's going to have to use that guile in this case. This will also be his U.S. debut. He's fought 12 times in Spain of all places, four in Sweden. So he's been around, done some things, world traveled. But this is, uh, as it typically is on Showbox, a, a good step up for him in that right direction to try to, you know, get next in line in that Filipino legacy, you know, lineage and legacy, if, even if he doesn't always hold to that as a Norwegian fighter these days. Is he the A-side against Saya in this matchup? Or is it too early to say with these guys, there isn't really an A-side in a lot of Showbox fights? I think this one's a little bit more uh, evenly matched than in this regard. Look, uh, you know, at the end of the day here, for Torres, he's exciting. I, I label him as a bit of a more of a boxer, but he's an aggressive boxer as a southpaw. He actually has a good amateur background. He can move. He may not have po the power on this level to be as aggressive as he is sometimes in fights. So that's why it's going to be interesting against somebody like Fortunato, uh, who's coming off a first defeat of his career a couple of fights back in March of 2021. But if you talk to his camp, he went 10 rounds for the first time, was in Argentina on the road, maybe didn't have uh, the right conditioning he needed to this point. Always on Showbox, this is the right step-up level for him. But for Torres, you know, he's going to be facing a hungry guy who's coming in there looking just the same to expose him. Uh, I always shout out Gordon Hall, the patriarch of this great franchise. These seem to be three very good, well-matched fights here on this triple header in Atlantic City. This one on top of it, early feel either way, it's tough to tell uh, in terms of who's going to come out on top. Yeah. All right, so the opening bout. Features my favorite name to say in all of boxing, Janelson Figueroa Boca Chica. Uh, although uh, he didn't look so great last July in a draw against the aforementioned Chenard Bunch, he's up against Royman Villa in an eight round welterweight fight. And Villa sure looks like a puncher with a record of 24 and 1, 24 KOs. Uh, what are your feelings on Boca Chica after seeing some uneven performances from him? And, and do you think he might try to box safe against a KO artist like Villa? Uh, that, you know, that might be the game plan. That might be the smarter way to go. But I feel like when I watch him, there, there's a feeling at 23, like he, he wants to be spectacular. He wants to have moments. He's got good skills. He's got good pop and he can move a little bit. He's got a good uh, amateur background and a strong family background, considering his father and trainer, Nelson Figueroa, had grown up a strong Puerto Rican amateur, had trained at the Cronk Gym in Detroit, which is where Boca Chica was born and raised, uh, didn't end up turning pro. Uh, I feel like he wants to be a puncher at the end of the day more than a boxer. This could be an interesting matchup to, to decide for him 
which style in the end will be the best for him. Because when you're taking on a guy like Roman Royman Villa and you look at that record, 24 and one, but 24 KOs, it reminds you of the South unknown South American opponent who comes in. You remember Ricardo Torres walking through that door against Miguel mm. Cotto one time. People yep. say, oh, what is he? 29 and no 29 knockouts. Was it all cab drivers? Uh, turns out it wasn't all cab drivers <laughs> at the end of the day. And if you're uh Royman Villa, his trainer, Raul Chino Rivas, does train Bunch, does train, train Joseph Adorno, so there's a little bit of connectivity there. But if we know guys from Argentina, if we know guys from Venezuela, they can typically uh, carry themselves in there with that big uh, right hand and, and via an orthodox uh, fighter coming in. The youngest of nine brothers, all fighters. It's a little, 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 little Alvarez family uh, throwback. Little, you yeah. know, the Foremans, the uh, the Russells. Uh, this is what it feels like here. But uh, uh, I'm looking forward to if Via can continue that knockout streak and, and keep it going. Put you on the spot here a little bit. So we've got six fighters on this card. If you were to make a guess right now, which of those six do you think is most likely to end up standing out at the end of the night? I really think this opener is jumping mm. out. Now, look, I love Joseph Adorno. I think he makes great TV, and I still think he has a very fight, bright future. So believe me, this main event is must-see uh, at this level for a guy who could end up being a star. But Via, Boca Chica, I like the way this is evenly matched. I know how much uh, Boca Chica wants to kind of stand out. He's been sparring with Danny uh, Garcia in Philadelphia. He's you know, he's kind of been raised for this in a lot of ways, although you can say the same thing about Via coming from such a big boxing family. But, you know, the the foreign puncher arriving on the soil to be your toughest challenge right here at 17-0-1. I want to see if Boca Chica can make that step to the next level at only 23. And I think, you know, he may have one of those sneaky, toughest challenges I've fought to date type of opponents in front of him, even with coming off of that split draw against Bunch and, uh, you know, Via's team, they're ready for this. So uh, I think this opener, which it tends to, it tends to be on Showbox, right? You come for the main event, yeah. you call, yeah. you leave talking about that opener, and then the and the two aggressive foes looking out to try to make their name. Look out for this one come Friday night. Uh, so for this show, you'll be back at the site of the first ever Showbox. Uh, you're at Bally's in Atlantic City, where on the first ever card, Leonard Doreen headlined against Martin O'Malley, July twenty first, two thousand one. I know where Steve Farhood was that day. I know where Nick Charles was. I know where Gordon Hall was. I know where I was. I was watching live on Showtime from the living room of my crappy post-college house. <laughs> where was Brian Campbell on that day or, or about that time? Give us a sense of how much BC's life has changed since 21 years ago. BC's life has changed a lot. That would be a 22-year-old BC, four days removed from his 23rd birthday. So where would I have been? Living in my third floor apartment, not in the van down by the river, but overlooking the uh, <laughs> the center of town in my uh, in my factory town hometown, and probably on that Friday night at the uh, local dimly lit bar. I think they had twenty five cent nights. Do I think? No, I know they did. Okay, they had twenty five cent Budweiser nights. So I wasn't necessarily wow. watching that fight, but uh, what a full circle moment for the show's mm. history to come back to the start of it uh, there in Atlantic City and. Um, you know, shout out to that original crew, many of them still working on Showbox today, which is the secret sauce as to why this, you know, mom and pop operation is so special. Wow. So if I'm doing the math right, 25 cent Budweiser's, you're telling me I could get fully drunk for 50 cents in my current lightweight <laughs> state. Yeah. A dime and a nickel for you, Rask. Okay. If they put an umbrella in it, you'll be out of there. But, you know, 
you know, that's what you would do when, when you're young and your life's not going in the right direction. You'd walk up to the bartender and say, I'll take six, please. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> just, just to start. Just to start. You're here right? with five friends? No, no, no. These no are just I'm by me. myself. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if, if only I had the luck of, you know, stumbling into the casino for Gotti Ward 1, you know, like a prime Eric Raskin seeing history in front of me. But these were some, you know, in and out years of my boxing lifedom, you know, but I'm back, baby. That's right. You've come a long way. We've all had our different paths. To the top four. I mean, you know, and it, 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 the, the more interesting question would be to the international man of mystery himself, Mulv over here. I mean, which humpback whale were you humping back back in 2001 in July? July 2001. Well, I was living in Alaska. I know that much. In my little cabin. So, but apart from that, I... I don't know. So you, you, know, you don't remember the whale's different. name that you were with that I, day. I never asked, never ask names. <laughs> okay, smart. Never, it's always Don't, don't let it get never, too personal. Never any entanglement. Big boned, big boned would be yeah. the way to say it. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> All right, final question for you, and it's not a showbox one. Uh, we were talking before you came on about the prospect of Jake Paul facing Anderson Spider Silver. Uh, got you on, really want to talk to you, get your MMA knowledge. Basically, how good of a matchup is this? Obviously, on the one hand, Spider's you know well, well removed from his best, but he was a good striker at his at his peak. Is this a legitimately really good matchup for Jake Paul here? Are you excited by this? It actually is, and I am really excited about this. And this goes in ways that go beyond cashing my Showtime checks. Look, uh, look, the fights that Jake really covets commercially, we know are, are the hardest to make for him in the boxing ring because he wants those guys still under UFC contract. The Diaz brothers, Conor McGregor, Jorge Masvidal. Are those going to happen? Well, those guys are going to have to play out their string. Anderson Silva is probably the biggest non-Mike Tyson or active UFC opponent he could he could make in terms of building a pay-per-view. But what makes that even better, this might be the hardest match. No, it is. This is the toughest matchup he's had to date. And if you're overly focused on the age of 47 for Anderson Silva, there's something you may have missed in the last few years. One that Silva is, there's a reason why Anderson Silva has always covered a boxing match with Roy Jones. And I'm glad it never happened considering Roy Jones's own, you know, slide in many ways. These guys are athletic freaks of nature who, even though Roy Jones hung on too long and we all love the legend was able to hang on too long because even when you, you lose a bit of your fastball, when you are a athletic freak to begin with, you might still have it to a degree at 47. And then you take what Silva's done the past few years. Look, he had already had two professional boxing matches, one in the late 90s, one in 2005, early in his UFC run. But he's come back to it. And while others have come back to face, you know, one-off other retired athletes, he's had more of a somewhat real transition into it. Now you can argue with the matchmaking. Some of it's been a retired Tito Ortiz in MMA. Some of it's been... uh Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., who we all know how much he's fallen from grace. But the transition footwork-wise that Silva has made from MMA to boxing has been light years ahead of anyone who has recently attempted to do that, including Tyron Woodley, who gave Jake Paul two very close fights and had him hurt and in, in close to being out in the first one. The main difference here, uh, there's a few main differences. One, Silva is Jake Paul's size. He competed for most of his career at 185 pounds. Remember Jake Paul's boxing in the low 190s. Silva also had many cups of coffee up a division at light heavyweight in the UFC, which is 205 pounds, in which he also never lost. And I believe won all of those fights by knockout. So is it still the Anderson Silva of his mid-30s and his UFC prime? No. 
But Anderson's only four years removed from fighting in a UFC fight that would have given him another title shot. So what that means, and he, and, he, and he lost respectfully, by the way, to current middleweight champion Israel Adesanya in a fight in which Silva had moments. In fact, Silva poured out, we thought, what was left. To be able to still do that when he was 43, 44, and be in that competitive fight, he's actually not that far physically removed from that. He's made the transition with the footwork, as I mentioned. He's long, he's tall, he has plenty of striking experience. He can hit Jake with the punches you don't see coming. And that's why he's been able to get some of these highlight reel knockouts in his own transition into celebrity boxing or whatever you want to call it. In this silo right now, which Jake Paul has been the face of this of this weird carnival circus sort of Xboxers coming back, entertainers getting in, Anderson has, without a doubt, been the most impressive. And if he's the same size as, as Jake, yet still might have a speed advantage, this could end up being a long night for Jake Paul. Anyone that thinks this is about money or this is about the name Silva, this is giving Jake probably his uh, his biggest attempt critically to really establish himself. Look, would I have loved it against Hasim Rahman Jr., who at least brought a certain level of legitimacy as a boxer? Yes, it, it seemed like the right fight to make at the right time. Anderson Silva, at the end of the day, could end up being could end up being even a harder matchup than that. And while anyone hearing this is going, oh, come on, BC, stop talking like an MMA guy, talk like a boxing guy, go watch the tape, take the taste test. Mm. Silva has always had a stance that was sort of next level in his ability to, to, to be quick and, and, and make sudden movements. And he has adapted to boxing w- way better than we expected he would. This is going to be a real fight. Dana White, the UFC president, said it himself when he was asked. He said, okay, this is it. This is time. This is the one. This is the real fight. This is the moment where Jake Paul says to me, is this a hobby or is this where you're headed down the path of boxing legitimacy? He can't get there without this win. Well, well it's, I mean, it's, it's, I know we're, we're, we've got a, plenty of time to go until it happens and time to think about it, but let's just say Jake Paul does win and say he wins well. What does that say about him at this stage? Now? Do we have to reevaluate what we're thinking about Jake Paul? We do. And I'm, and, and I'm not going to lie. If Jake Paul handily wins this, the age of Anderson Silva is going to be a big headline. I am telling you to suppress that headline ahead of it because he's much better than your average 47-year-old. So if Jake Paul gets this done against a guy who can box, has a win over a quote-unquote real boxer in Chavez Jr., I understand the implications there, but has one. Even rewatch that fight. You had a Chavez who came in there thinking, look, I'm fighting an old UFC star. I'm going to have my way. He didn't. He got backed up with quicker punches. He got hit with shots he didn't see coming. He went into a defensive shell. Silva got the win. If Jake can do this back to Silva in advance in this one, uh, will we be screaming for him to step up against a real boxer? Yeah, that will never go away until he does. But I think he's going to get the respect from those, even in the MMA space, who said, okay, I'll pay my money to see you fight Woodley twice. But as good as that, those wins are, that's a much smaller man who competed the equivalent of two weight classes below you in his prime. Now we got a guy who can look at Jake eye to eye in terms of size, length, reach, all that with Anderson. He's got much, much more fighting experience. Does that matter? When you still have speed, it does. Anderson still does. Don't let the 47 fool you. Now, 47-year-old Mole Veraskin. I actually am 47. Okay, I, there you go. I, I missed the 47-year-old Mole. But there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a lot farther from my prime than Anderson Silva is what I'm taking out of this. Yes. But but guys, you asked me what can Jake prove. Mm. 
look, he did come back well from getting cut and briefly hurt against Woodley in the first fight, but he has not been in a back and forth, evenly competitive fight that involved action. He boxed Woodley in the rematch on even terms in a slow, technical, somewhat boring fight until the knockout. I think what, what the fans who look at him and say, you're not a real boxer, you're nothing. They need to see him in a fight. This could end up being a fight where Jake has to, you know, use the advantages he does have, which means he's a little bit bigger. He's younger. He does have pop. But if you watch the tape closely, Jake does have some defensive holes that you can't Mm -hmm. learn in three, four years as hard as he's working. Um, This could end up being that real fight. And, 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 and it's crazy. Jake can get respect even on a loss here just by the way he performs. But uh, Vegas likes him as the early favorite. Mm. Myself, a lot of people from the MMA side are going to like Anderson from start to finish because we know what he still has. But I think these questions uh, come together and, and, and tell you this is a fight that you don't really know what it's going to look like. And at the end of the day, guys, we've been in, we've been hyping up a lot of fights for years that we know exactly what it's going to look like when it's in there. Right. The, this is this is sometimes a refreshing, you know, breath of air here to go. All right. Let's just sit down and see what happens, because if there's anything to get excited about in this genre, it's the fact that when you max match people from places other than boxing and put them in a boxing ring, really anything can happen. So let's find out there uh, if, if this thing gets announced and, and, and is official. I just had this realization that we're going to have to do a money punch special edition before the pay-per-view and bring BC on as we go through the odds and look at what the good odds are there. Were you mentioning Vegas there? I think we're going to have to do that. Uh, he just signed you up to come back on the podcast again, BC. Uh, yeah, and, we, yes. and, and, and we don't pay our guests. So uh, sorry, no. you've been, you, you, I mean, we're but, not paid. one of those last two statements that we made was true we won't tell the listeners which one exactly i think you guys do this for the love the passion that's what i think (laughs) this is the only human interaction i get (laughs) human air quotes yeah yes yes all right hey brian hey listen man thanks very much really appreciate it and uh all the best uh for your trip down to ac we will see you on showbox on friday all the best brother all right. I've been to AC in a while. Is Trump Plaza still up? I'll go check it out. All right. <laughs> all right. Our thanks again to BC. He is indeed, as as you said, a good egg. Um, and by the way, for the record, Trump Plaza, which he mentioned there when signing off, uh, no, not, not there anymore, went belly up in 2014 and got imploded last year in a symbolically satisfying moment uh, for some you know I'm, I'm not taking sides here i'm just saying sure. for some i'm impartial about such things of course um okay let's make our picks for the showbox main event joseph adorno versus hugo alberto rodan 10 rounds 140 pounds i have a narrow 66 to 64 lead and i pick first as bc said intriguing style clash aggressive guy with power against a boxer mover without much power Roldan is an interesting fighter. He's got maybe a hint of Maravilla Martinez in him. He's flashy. He's quick-fisted. He'll switch stances, but he can be inconsistent. He tends to throw wide, and he's never fought anyone on Adorno's level. Like Brian said, you just don't know sometimes with these South American yeah. guys. Sometimes they show up, and it turns out that they are world-class fighters who immediately make a splash. Sometimes they go 21-0 and in Argentina, and then... outside Argentina, and they go back home, resigned to being a local club fighter. Roldan seems decent, but Adorno appears to be the higher pedigree boxer. And, you know, his loss to Michelle Rivera, you know, Rivera's a top prospect, and it was 97-93 on all cards, not a blowout. So I don't hold that against him. That was in March. He got right back on the horse and fought again in May, then in July, now in September. 
So he's staying busy. I think it'll serve him well. Roldan is awkward. He has some skills, but he was knocked down a couple of times in his last fight. I'm going to say Adorno is a little too much for him. My pick is Joseph Adorno, KO8. Although I fully recognize that I don't know enough about Roldan. Haven't seen enough of Roldan, especially against top opposition, to make that pick with a ton of conviction. But nevertheless, I am making it Adorno, KO8. Yeah, I'm pretty intrigued by this contest. And, and the more I've watched video of both of them, and like yourself, I've only been able to find a little bit of, of video about of Roldan, the more interested I am. It is indeed, as we were talking about, a, a classic clash of styles here. I, I quite like what I've seen from both of them. Um, yeah, Adorno had that period where he appeared to have a, you know, a bit of a blip with two draws and then the loss. But yeah, it was a draw with Jermaine Ortiz was one of them. And then the loss to Rivera, like he said, there's nothing to be ashamed of whatsoever. Uh, Rivera may well be a top tier prospect. Um, but he did struggle to cope with Rivera's jab and movement during that contest, which makes me wonder, will he have a similarly hard time with Roldan's style? Um, I've seen a Roldan's style. It's an interesting, it is the boxer move style, but he is able to sit down on his punches and throw hard combinations when he does need to fight his way out of a, uh, of a tight space. But yeah, look, like you said, not only has he never fought anyone as good as Ordorno, he hasn't fought anyone as good as Ordorno has fought, um, like, like a Jermaine Ortiz or, or a Michelle Rivera. Right. So... Maybe he just looks good because it was a function of better opposition. But that's the difficulty sometimes with picking these showbox fights because we're trying to assess the performances of, of less known fighters against opponents who are even less known. Um, <laughs> but I kind of think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to go a little differently here. I think if he is able to resist Adorno's power, I kind of think that if Roldan is as good as he looks like he might be, and it might be a mirage, right? It totally might be a mirage. But I like the look of Roldan's style. I think he might just be able to keep him at bay, but I think it'll be close. I'm going to go with what I suspect is probably considered the upset. I think Roldan just might eke out a split decision win here. Okay, I like it. It's bold. It's uh, either puts you back in the lead, perhaps, or uh, puts you uh, a bit behind. Really, the where ball. I want right. <laughs> right. Either way, you're going to be happy no matter what the score is after this, <laughs> I guess. Um, there's one other card this coming weekend, well worth the preview. Quite possibly the biggest and best women's boxing card ever, with not one but two tremendous 10 round unification fights, not to mention eight women's six rounders on the undercard. But the big ones on this ESPN Plus card from the O2 Arena in London on Saturday are the main event, the middleweight title showdown between Clarissa Shields and Savannah Marshall, both 12-0, and 0, and it's a grudge match as Marshall was the only opponent ever to defeat Shields in boxing as an amateur a decade ago. And then co-feature at 130 pounds, Michaela Mayer, 17-0, meets Alicia Baumgartner, who is 12-1. Kieran, what's your level of excitement for this card, and does one fight interest you more than the other? I'm really excited for this card. Uh, I'm really into it. And uh, actually, I also have a bit of a sense of nervous anticipation because we're not supposed to have favorites, but I like Clarissa. Mm-hmm. And I've interviewed her quite a bit. I think she's in genuine jeopardy here. Um, the co-main is excellent. It says a lot about the quality of the card when it's an all-women's card and Michaela Mayer is in the co-main. Yeah. Um, obviously, she's been an excellent champion. Um, but my goodness, so uh, is Baumgartner, who, like Mayer, they both they both hold two alphabet belts. Um, Baumgartner is perhaps best known for her win last year over the very good Terry Harper. You may recall that was a highly unusual knockout. Um, she had Harper literally out cold standing up. Right. 
And and it took some really good uh, intervention by the referee to, to stop Harper from being badly hurt. And Harper was undefeated at that time. Um, this feels like a pick em fight almost. Uh, I would probably lean toward Meyer. I think she has the the reach. I think she probably has the skills um, to, to outpoint Alicia. But I think it's going to be a terrific fight. And honestly, the main event almost feels like a pick to me, too. Uh, as I think I've mentioned before, I think what excites and intrigues me the most is less the fact that Marshall outpointed Shields as an amateur when Shields was 17. Um, more the fact that she has a really good chance of beating her as a pro. Um, she's got reach over Shields. She uses her height and reach very well. She appears to have a real power advantage. I'm leaning towards Clarissa being able to outbox her, not least because I really do think that Clarissa's skill level, which was already high, has come on leaps and bounds over the past couple of years, as we've mentioned. The thing that really gives me pause, though, is that Clarissa's been a part-time boxer lately, while Marshall has been honing her craft and getting better and better. Um, as I think I might have mentioned before, a couple of years ago, I would feel quite confident in picking Clarissa Shields to win this. Now, I'm not quite as sure. Um, if I if we were making a pick, I would pick Shields by decision, but I think this is an extremely tough fight to call. Well, as long as you kept uh, throwing the word pick them in there while you were talking, I decided to open up one of the betting okay. apps on my phone and just see what we have here. Uh, Michaela Mayer is a minus 270 favorite over plus 205 underdog Alicia Baumgartner, so not a pick them, but a competitive fight according yeah. to the odds. Clarissa Shields, Savannah Marshall, yes, it is a pick them. I remember when it first opened up that Marshall was a slight favorite and I was a little surprised by that and it has swung ever so slightly the other way currently Clarissa minus 115 Savannah Marshall minus 110 basically they Oof. have them both as wow. favorites they, they don't want to lose wow. money on this fight so yeah that is a true toss-up according to the sports books okay all right we wrap up the podcast with the top five list uh your assignment to me spinning off our hall of fame trip in june and roy jones bristling at people rating floyd mayweather higher than him was to rank the top five performances by either fighter and this was interesting. I have some big picture observations and takeaways that I will delve into once I've revealed my whole list. Uh, okay. But I'll just get right into it. Start with number five. Um, I guess that's where I'm supposed to start, a top five countdown. <laughs> uh, this was kind of tough, this spot. The top four separated themselves for me. But yeah. number five was kind of a toss-up between a few options. I went with October 3rd, 1998, Floyd Mayweather's first major title fight when, at just 21 years of age, he took a huge leap in class and absolutely dominated veteran Gennaro Hernandez to win his first belt. Hernandez was a top-class fighter he'd only ever lost to Oscar De La Hoya. I think Gennaro had a Hall of Fame-worthy resume, or at least very close to it. It was going to take a fairly special fighter to dethrone him. Turned out he was up against a very special young fighter. Floyd just dominated this from bell to bell. Gennaro tried everything. He boxed, he brawled, he moved, he applied pressure. Nothing worked. Floyd won every round and got the stoppage and announced his arrival as a guy to start considering for pound-for-pound pound lists. This would be a great performance for any fighter at any age, but particularly for a 21-year-old fighter, it was yeah. exceptional. So, debatably, I'm putting this one at number five on my list. So this is already a little bit disconcerting because I also had four that appear to separate themselves. And I also <laughs> had this as my number five. Okay. Um, I thought this was one in which there was enough choice that we wouldn't 
come up with the same list, but I'm already a little nervous about how the rest of this I is going to go. I think there's a very good chance we have the same four fights. Whether we have them in the same Indeed. order, though, remains to be seen. But okay, uh, so let's see if we can make it two for two. Uh, I started with a Mayweather fight. Next up is a Roy Jones fight. I could see some people putting this a spot or two higher, but I have it at number four. March 1st, 2003, the heavyweight experiment. Roy Jones, W12, John Ruiz. Spectacular performance, remarkable display of Roy's ability, and he dominated while giving up some 30 pounds. And for all of his faults, Ruiz had beaten a lot of good heavyweights. He defeated Evander Holyfield and Kirk Johnson prior to this. He would bounce back after this to beat Haseem Rahman, Freza Kendo, Andrew Galata. He was a handful for most of those fighters, but Roy, a light heavyweight prior to this fight, had his way with Ruiz. I do have some asterisks that explain why I rank this fight lower than some might. I know that I just offered some praise for Ruiz, but Roy did cherry pick him as just the right heavyweight against whom to snag a belt. Roy coasted a bit in the late rounds. He didn't finish the show. And ref Jay Nady helped Roy a lot by Mm. warning Ruiz from the very start about holding, which I'm not saying he was wrong to do, but he made beating Ruiz much easier for Roy then most referees made it for most Ruiz opponents. All that said, I mean, just watch Roy work the first several rounds. After those first several rounds, Ruiz was pretty much mentally beaten. It was it was over after about four rounds. It's a masterclass in a smaller, faster boxer making a bigger man look silly. You know, when Floyd moved up in weight and fought a guy this much bigger than he was weight ratio-wise— it was Conor McGregor, not even really a boxer. Right. Roy moved up and dethroned a legit heavyweight titleist. Now, he paid the price for the weight gain later, but on this night, he was brilliant. Yes, yeah, so slight divergence here. I did have it a couple of places higher. Okay. Uh, it was number two on my list, okay. even though I had the same caveats, that it wasn't the real world heavyweight championship, and he stayed away from anyone who, you know, from the actual real heavyweight champion, uh, quite rightly. Um, and it was John Ruiz. But yeah, it was a absolutely sensational performance. It was, you know, had he had he quit right then and there, uh, he would have been lauded, I think, as one of the absolute very best ever to lace him up. It would have been yeah. an incredible final note. It was his final pie note, really, of, of his career. Um, but yeah, it's on my list. I have it at number two. Okay. Um, so I'll make it back-to-back Roy fights on my list. In fact, back-to-back 12-round distance fights dominated by Roy. Uh, November 18th, 1994, his first big pay-per-view headlining date as he moved up from middleweight to challenge super middleweight champ and arguably the best pound-for-pound fighter coming into this fight, certainly one of the top two or three, fellow new Hall of Famer, James Tony. Roy was the slight underdog, but he scored a knockdown in the third round and was in control every step of the way. The individual judges gave Tony just one, two, and three rounds. This was never close. And you don't usually see that when two top five pound-for-pound guys Mm. square off, but that's how special Roy Jones was. Uh, The caveats here, the reason this is only number three on my list, uh, Tony was definitely weight-drained and not at his best. And Roy, again, failed to finish the show, which limits one's opportunity to look at this and say, that's the greatest performance I've ever seen in a boxing ring. It's hard to say that when it goes the distance, but it still might be the fight you'd want to show someone, you know, as long as it's someone who could appreciate how good James Tony was, this might be the fight you'd use to show Roy Jones at the peak of his powers. So I have it number three among Roy or Floyd performances. 
and I had it number four. Okay. Um, yeah, the, with the only asterisk being that 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 James was severely weight drained, but that was on him, not on Roy, of course. And uh, and it was such a comprehensive beating; it really marked the beginning of of a fairly long decline for for James Tony from being just like you said, one of the top pound for pound fighters to really sort of fading into irrelevance until he re-energized his career in around 2002, 2003 or so. So absolutely magnificent. Uh, all of Roy's best footwork and hand speed and skills and everything on display here. You can tell he worked very hard in the gym <laughs> with yes. this one. Um, but yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm beginning to, we are going to have the same list. I think, I, I think we have to, yeah. but, uh, you know, but at least it's good. We have them in a totally different order. Indeed. Um, and at number two, this is an interesting one to compare directly with Jones versus Tony. It's January 20th, 2001. I wouldn't be at all surprised if this is number one on your list or on anyone else's Floyd Mayweather, KO 10, Diego Corrales. I make the comparison with the Tony fight because Corrales people forget now, was a very slight betting favorite over Floyd, as Tony was over Roy. Mm -hmm. And Corrales, like Tony, was a bit weight-drained and simply could not handle his opponent's speed advantage. And what we ended up seeing was a one-sided fight in favor of that faster, slight underdog. The reason I give Mayweather's performance versus Chico the edge over Roy's performance versus Tony is a term I've hit on a couple of times already, finishing the show. Uh, Floyd scored five knockdowns and eventually forced the stoppage in the 10th. Now, Corrales didn't like that stoppage, but his trainer and stepfather, Ray Woods, did the right thing, I think. Um, the CompuBox stats for this fight are remarkable. Corrales, 60 of 205. He landed just six punches per round. Wow. Mayweather landed more than Corrales threw. 220 of 414, wow. 53%. Even though he was only 23 and would go on to achieve so much more and win titles in four more weight classes, this was probably the best version of Floyd Mayweather we ever saw. I have his undressing of Chico Corrales at number two on my list. And I did have it at number one. Yeah. Um, uh, almost perfection. And uh, this is the the textbook example of if you have the ability, of course, this this was almost the perfect fight. Like you said, Corrales was at least considered um, even going into the fight, maybe even a, that slight favorite. And Floyd just absolutely undressed him and uh, an absolutely magnificent performance. This was Floyd Mayweather at his very, very peak. And when people talk about Floyd being a, you know, a very defensive fighter or a cautious fighter, I'm always like to emphasize that. Yeah. In his later years at 147, that might be so right. 130 Floyd Mayweather was a beast, right? All right, so through process of elimination, you've probably <laughs> figured out my number one by now. It's a Roy Jones fight that is different from the usual Roy Jones 12-round boxing masterclass. This fight lasted just two and a half minutes. August 7th, 1997, revenge for his controversial disqualification loss five months prior. Roy Jones, KO1, Montel Griffin. This was Roy in beast mode, something we didn't see often. He was angry. He had something to prove. And he rocked Griffin with the very first punch he threw, a left hook. And the next hook knocked Griffin into the ropes for a knockdown less than 20 seconds into the fight. After that, he was in pursuit. It was a version of Roy we didn't see that often. It did take about two more minutes. And then Roy landed the kind of left hook that really only Roy Jones and yeah. maybe Sugar Ray Robinson could throw. Uh, Griffin went down, tried to get up stumbled back down a couple of times and it was over. And Montel Griffin was no bum. He was a really skilled fighter. 
He beat James Tony twice before this. He remained a credible fighter for another decade or so after this. Roy talked to us about how, other than maybe Mike Tyson, he said, he has the best YouTube highlights of any modern boxer. This is the sort of thing he was talking about. This was almost Tyson-esque power that he showed. This is the most offensively spectacular yeah. performance either Roy Jones or Floyd Mayweather ever had. And I'll go ahead and call it the best performance of either man's career. And we have a slight discrepancy because I had it as my 5B slash 6 on my list. Okay. So, um, and, and I agree with what you said about the most offensively spectacular performance of, of, of any of them ever. And I remember watching it and it was a tremendous performance. But so can you guess what's missing? I will tell you it is number three number on three. my list. Okay. So is it maybe Mayweather against Manfredi? No. Mayweather Hatton? No. Mayweather Canelo? No. Is it Mayweather? <laughs> it is Mayweather. Okay. Then I guess, does that leave Mayweather Kodo? No. <laughs> is it Pacquiao just because it was it up is. against Pacquiao? Oh, okay. It's just right. because it was up against Pacquiao. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, it, it was not a great fight, to put it mildly. Um, but still, he, in the end, fairly comfortably beat Manny Pacquiao, who was his big rival for pound for pound number one at the time. It wasn't a great fight. He, again, to get back to your point, he did not attempt to finish the show when perhaps he could have done sort of around like round nine or 10 or so. I think it felt as if he could have stepped forward and stepped into it more. But let's not forget about all the buildup there had been to it, all the questions about who was the better fighter and the fact that at the end of the day, and I remember you and I doing our post-fight podcasts and saying we were hoping for a Manny Pacquiao fight. Right. We got a Floyd Mayweather fight. Floyd completely controlled Manny Pacquiao. And given what Manny then went on to do subsequently, he was not washed at all. Uh, I think that deserves a placement there. I it was not it's not a fight I'll ever want to rewatch again. It, it, it was it was dull, but I think in terms of his achievement, um, what it did, uh, that's why I thought I'd put it on that list. Yeah, I get the case for it. It, it didn't strike me as the sort of fight to make my top five, but sure. I, but I understand the case for it. Um, so I, I have a few honorable mentions, and I've now mentioned almost all of them. Um, <laughs> they're, they're almost all Mayweather fights. Um, so I gave three of my top five spots to Roy. In fact, three mm -hmm. of my top four went to Roy, but after the top four, five of my next six uh, and four of my top five honorable mentions here go to Floyd. And I think it speaks to some of the differences in these two great boxers that Jones could be more spectacular, in especially in terms of offense and punching power. Mayweather was far more consistent, achieved more in his career, and thus has the deeper resume of top flight performances. So it, to me, it kind of adds up to give Roy three of my top five, but to give Floyd six of the top ten. Mm. Um, among my honorable mentions are Floyd's KO2 of Angel Manfredi, his KO10 of Ricky Hatton, his 12-round decision wins over Canelo and Cotto, um, plus I put Roy's shutout-ish decision over Reggie Johnson in there, but... At the same time, that was the ultimate case of Roy coasting down the stretch and, and turning what had been a spectacular start into a kind of boring display by the end. Um, but, you know, there's just a really huge gap for me between Roy's top three performances yeah. and everything else on his resume. But again, my list speaks to why I believe Floyd is and should be ranked higher among the all-time greats, but also why Roy feels aggrieved by someone saying that yeah. because he was that damn ridiculously good at his very best. But I, I'm not going to call him gifted or talented. I won't do it, it Kieran. Is. 
Indeed. And I have basically the uh, same honorable mentions. I had just had a longer list. Uh, okay. my, your and my Floyd list is the same. Uh, I'll throw Gaddy in there too, as well. Yeah, he was um, so I mean, overmatched. I get that. But I, yeah. that, but, yeah. um, uh, I also put KO for Virgil Hill on Roy's honorable mention yep, list. Yeah, I thought about um, that. That's That might be his next one, yeah. Yeah, and the KO2 of Murky Sosa. Murky Sosa was good. And and Roy moved up to light heavyweight and just obliterated him. Um, right. So that one came up on one of our recent uh, top fives. Was I had it in my honorable mentions, I believe, for uh, premature stoppages. Uh, oh, that, right. And, and Roy did was dominating him and beating him up, but it also was like stopped while Sosa was still punching back, and Sosa was just a tough guy who had a lot more to give. So that one kind of limited it for me because uh, it ended maybe a, a tiny bit earlier than it should have but regardless yeah yeah and, and it's difficult to know what to do with the bernard hopkins win because it was yeah. a terrible fight it yeah terrible it really fight. was absolutely awful yeah uh, at the same time roy handled a guy who went on to be not only a, a hall of famer but an all-time great and so it's it's difficult where you draw the line and and, and what you sort of emphasize there but it's certainly not a fight i would ever sit down and watch again that's for <laughs> darn sure yeah and and it was had he done that against a prime Hopkins, and it's weird to say pre-prime. Usually we talk about post-prime, but this was pre-prime Hopkins yeah. where he wasn't quite yet what he would become. Had Roy won in dominant but boring fashion against a prime Hopkins, I probably would put it in the top five. Sure. But in this case, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you that it's it's somewhere down near the bottom of the honorable mentions. Yeah, yeah. And that says something about those guys, right? Like you can have a, a pretty dominant 12 round decision against Bernard Hopkins and it doesn't get in your top 10. Right. I mean, or or shows May- the level we're talking about. Right. Or Mayweather guys. can defeat Manny Pacquiao and it didn't right. occur to me to put it up near the top of his performances. <laughs> right. Yeah. They, they have pretty good Hall of Fame resumes. these two. I, I, would, I would say so. And that's good. We actually had a little bit of variance there. I was uh-huh. worried with that with that number five. <laughs> but there we go. That will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with our post fight analysis of the Showbox triple header and the women's card in London. Plus, we will preview Canelo Alvarez, Gennady Golovkin 3. Until then, thanks very much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.